Okay, I asked uh, in our question there, does anyone have any good camping stories? Well, it turns out I have a great camping story myself. A tent story, in fact. It's more than just camping. It's a tent story. When I moved to Colorado to go to seminary, uh, we reconnected. In fact, I didn't reconnect. My wife reconnected with uh, a couple that she had known uh, in college here at Seattle Pacific University. Uh, They go by the terminology, the Kriegers. And the Kriegers are this great couple, Drew and Carolyn, but I had never met them. I met Drew the first night uh, we arrived in Denver. We immediately made a connection, and he immediately invited me to go on a long hike and camping trip. I'd only known him three days, and he was inviting me into the mountains. It was just me and Drew and a German named Flo. I'm not joking. His name was Flo, F-L-O. And Flo was also in a German uh, punk rock band, and he was the bass player. If you know anything about bass players, they can be scary. Okay. And he is a German named Flo. And so me and Drew and a German named Flo, uh, we head out into Rocky Mountain National uh, Forest, and um, we begin our hike. Now, if you don't know this, Colorado... And Denver, in particular, is a mile high. So we're already, and I'm from uh, Seattle, and when I wasn't in Seattle, I was living in Dallas. So we're talking lowlands, we're talking uh, sea level, and so I'm already a little bit short on oxygen. Now, we begin our hike, and I, I don't think I'm making this up. I think this was a difficult hike. Drew has later told me this much. And uh, we begin our hike, and we're hiking, and we're hiking, And if you know anything about Colorado, it's always nice, and so it was nice and sunny. And we're making our hike up the mountain. We saw two uh, moose. How do you say that? I think moose, uh, mises, no, moose. Um, uh, The first I was very sort of aware of. The second was kind of off in the distance, and Drew and Flo, they decided uh, to go take a closer look. And I said, guys, I'm a little bit tuckered out, and so I waited back at the trail. Now, when, I'm just telling you this because it's hilarious. When they came back from their little excursion to see, get a closer look at the moose, uh, I had fallen asleep on the trail. In fact, I'd probably passed out was a better word to use, and I didn't know how long I'd been passed out, and they woke me up, and they came back, and uh, so I was extremely tired. Just trying to give you some context. Extremely tired, low on oxygen. I could barely hike up this mountain. In fact, for the last, like, this is kind of embarrassing, but for the last you know, 10, 15 minutes of the hike, Flo took my backpack as well as his and finished the hike. Very embarrassing, but we have to be honest here if we're going to have real community. And so I had this German named Flo, bass player, carrying my pack up the mountain for me. And we finally arrive at this lake, this, uh, where, which is our final destination, and all of a sudden, uh, we see some clouds coming in. But we thought nothing of it because it's Colorado and clouds move right by and they never stay long. And uh, we had brought two tents. We had brought a three-man tent, and we had brought a two-man tent. Plush accommodations, plenty of room for everyone. Well, these clouds rolled in, and they got a little bit more uh, ominous and and a little bit darker. and, And the problem was they stopped moving, and they just started sinking in. And we were starting to set up the three-man tent when all of a sudden it just dumped. I mean, it's like the skies opened up and just buckets of water were crashing down on us. Now, here's the problem. 
it never rains in Colorado. So my buddy Drew, he didn't bring the rain fly for the three-man tent. He said, surely it won't rain in Colorado. It was the summertime. So we said, you know what? No rain fly. Let's set up the two-man tent. So we hurried. We set up the two-man tent, and we all packed into the two-man tent. We'll wait out this storm. When it ends, we'll put up the three-man tent. We'll be good to go. It rained for the next 12 hours straight. So, me, a six-foot-three, Drew Krieger, and a German named Flo, cramming into a two-man tent. And two-man tents are really, I'm a, I'm a large Norwegian man, and so a two-man tent's really what I need. <laughs> so you got to picture it. It's me like this with my head up here. Drew's decided to put his feet here and his head down here, and then Flo's got his head here and his feet here, so we've kind of staggered it. And for the whole night, we're just crammed into this two-man tent. I think I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked over and I just saw Flo smiling at me. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the lesson that I learned. You never really appreciate the rain fly until it begins to pour, right? And you don't really realize the value of a three-man tent until you're spooning with a German named Flo. So those are the things, so that's it. Uh, Play the music, we're done for the day. So just write that down. That's all we got. No, of course it's not all we got. I've got plenty of other stuff. So often we do not uh, (laughs) really realize what makes a great tent until the tent is put to the test. And what we'll see in the text today is that that Jesus has offered us a new, a better covenant, which is entrance into a new and better tent from God. So if you're there, Hebrews uh, chapter 8, we're going to read our text for the day. Hebrews chapter 8. Feel free to pull it up on your phone if you need to. It's also written in your bulletin. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. As a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he, that's Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a high priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if this first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion, no need to look for a second. Now what's going on here? Well, to understand what's going on, we've got to look at that first line and we've got to remember where we've come from. Now the point is this. It says we have such a high priest. 
And if uh, we've kind of alluded to chapter 7 several times, and this idea has come up that Jesus is the greater high priest. Now, of course, Israel had high priests who mediated uh, their religious ceremony and ritual and sacrifice and whatnot, but Jesus is said by the author of Hebrews to be the better high priest, the superior high priest. And what kind of priest is this? Well, what we've learned is that uh, Jesus is a priest who was made a priest by an oath from God. We talked about that last week, the idea of an oath, that God has said it is so, and we can trust his oath. He's also a priest who is perfect. Why? Because he is untainted by sin. Now, we often forget this point. This is so important to remember, uh, both always and for what we're talking about today, that Jesus was the perfect high priest because he lived a sinless life. Now, this isn't just something we say about Jesus as sort of a compliment. Oh, he was a really good guy, lived a sin. No, he actually lived without sin. So he's a priest who is perfect. He's also a priest who holds the position forever. So Jesus is not just part of a long line of an order of sort of rotating priests. He's a priest forever. And he's a priest forever because he lived, he died, but he never saw decay because he rose from the grave and he's alive today. These aren't just things we say. This is true. He is alive today and his priesthood never ends. He never retires. No one ever takes his place. He's a priest forever. He's also a priest who does not operate in a man-made temple or tent. A man-made temple or tent. We'll look at that in a second. But he's performing his duties. Look here at what it says in verse 1. Uh, sorry, verse, oh yeah, verse 1. Uh, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So here's this important. Jesus is alive. He's a real person. He's alive. But he's not ministering in a tent made by man, a tent like this, but he's in the heavenly place in the throne room of God. Why is this so important? Let me give you an example. Jesus is not just like some lobbyist, even a very successful lobbyist, who's vying for the attention of the president and he may be able to make some movement uh, with a particular bill or whatnot. He's not like that. He's not even like a senator or representative. He's more like the chief of staff, and his office is connected to the Oval Office. And he's sitting there day in and day out, mediating on our behalf, ministering on our behalf with the Father, minute by minute. This is why he's a better priest. That's why it's important that we know Jesus as our priest and not just somebody like me. Okay, look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, that the Lord set up, not man. Now this is a key uh, idea that we'll be jamming on all day, so let me try to explain what's going on. The first idea is this. I just mentioned it. Jesus is actively ministering. I think so often we think of Jesus as this abstract idea. We don't think of him as actually working. And mini- he is ministering. And the word ministering here means serving. Jesus is serving us. 
Not because he has to, not because he's getting a paycheck, because he chooses to. He doesn't have to. He chooses to work on our behalf, to serve on our behalf. And he's actually doing it, moment by moment, day in and day out. He's a real person who's actively serving us. I don't think most of us envision Jesus this way. We think of him as more of like a figurehead for our faith or a placeholder or the name we use at Christmas. He's a real person and he's serving every day. And I think so often we seriously disrespect him because we don't recognize that he's doing this. At Thanksgiving, I'm always reminded of how I disrespect those who serve me. Why? Because my mother slaves away in the kitchen. And you know what I do? I come in and I eat the food. And I usually say something, oh, this turkey's a little bit dry. Could have done better. Instead of recognizing that she's been serving me all day. Even when I don't see her, she's serving, getting ready for the meal. I realize this now that I'm a parent. We do this to our parents probably more than anyone. But I realize it now that I'm a parent because Grayson, (laughs) he disrespects me all the time, man. (laughs) I mean, he really disrespects me, but he really disrespects his mother. He doesn't know he's doing it, of course. But mom comes home, and all he sees is the milk. I mean, she brings out the milk, and and my wife, Allie, she works the night shift at the hospital. Incredibly difficult job. And you know what she has to do? They have this little, like, equipment closet, and that's where, if you're a nursing mother, you have to go to pump during your shift, and they usually give you, like, ten minutes. Grayson doesn't see any of that. All he sees when she walks in is the bag with the milk in it, and he just goes, (sighs) ah. What about mom? And so you know what I do? When I'm bouncing, I was like, you don't know how much mom loves you. Be nice to mom. Kiss mom. Smile at mom. You don't know how much she's serving you. Also, uh, I've got a lot of these (laughs) illustrations because I think we do this so often. We so often forget about the people that are serving us and we disrespect them. I watched this documentary called The True Cost. Has anybody seen it? about the garment industry. It's, it'll blow your mind. You'll save a lot of money if you watch it over the holidays because <laughs> you won't buy as many clothes. But we buy our clothing and we just think it just appears in the store and there's no, uh, we don't know how, it just kind of, they got it off a clothes tree and they brought it down and that's not how our clothes got there. Somebody made that. Somebody made this shirt and the shirt you're wearing and the pants you're wearing. Somebody made that. And it's probably somebody in Southeast Asia, and they're probably making $3 a day, and they're probably working in a building that at any minute could crumble on top of them because they have to so that they can feed their children. But you know what? We don't think of that when we buy our clothes. We don't think that somebody served and sweated in order that we might have the goods that we buy. Hey, I'm... The same. I don't do this. I don't see the serving, the ministering. All I see is the final product. And I think, man, it's so nice that I have this. Do we ever stop and think that someone's working very, very hard so that we can have the life that we live? Well, Jesus is doing this. He's working day in and day out. Not because he has to, not because he needs a paycheck, because he chooses to serve us. Even when all we do 
when the only time we pray is when we don't like the work that he's doing. Not the main point of my sermon, but it just struck me. Jesus is ministering. This isn't just an idea. This is literally happening. He's ministering right now on our behalf. He's serving us. Look at verse 3 through 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he, that's Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Here's what's happening right here. Jesus is not like the rest of the priests who offer sacrifices in man-made temples. Jesus is different. In fact, the true tent that Jesus ministers in is not the same as a shadow tent. The tents that we create are shadow tents. And specifically what he's referencing here is in the Old Testament, once Moses had liberated the people from slavery in Egypt, he brought them into the wilderness, God called Moses up onto the mountain, and he gave Moses the law. And part of the law was very specific directions on how to build the tabernacle, which was literally a tent that they erected in the middle middle of the wilderness, and this became their place of worship. And God said, I will reside here. This is where you will come to me and you'll perform the rest of the law, which he also gave to Moses. But he says, this tent is made after a pattern, which means that there's another tent that's the original. And that tent is in heaven. That's the true tent where the true high priest ministers. That's Jesus. Does that make sense? So he says, I'm going to give you some directions that will help you model the man-made earthly tent after the true tent in heaven. That's what's going on. That is the true er, uh, heavenly sanctuary. This earthly tent is but a shadow. Now here's the deal. A shadow is not a bad thing. I think we tend to think of a a very shadowy character, this Jordan Lake. You know? No, a shadow is not a bad thing necessarily. It's more like a five o'clock shadow. Looks pretty good. Jordan, you have a very nice shadow right now. Yeah. Thanks, man. So it's not a bad thing, it's just not the real thing. It's just not the real a five o'clock shadow is not a full man beard. I can't grow much more than a shadow. Some of you have the great spiritual gift of man beard. Thank the Lord for that this holiday season. So a shadow is not a bad thing. It's just not the real thing, okay? So we have a shadow tent. We have the real tent. Um, you know, here's the deal. Like instant mashed potatoes, I actually kind of like them. But they're a shadow, of the real deal, right? A shadow of the Idaho, the Idaho peeled potato. That's a shout out to my Boise friends, okay? Come on. It's just not the same. No, it's not bad. It's just not the same. 
because there's something better. Okay? Got it? Got it? Okay, here we go. Verse 6 to 7. Verse 6 to 7. But, but, at, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since, is, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not be need, no occasion to look for a second covenant. So here's what's going on. We have this idea that Jesus is ministering in a better tent, in the true tent, and He's ministering to a new covenant. Because the old covenant, the original covenant, was not enough. It was fault. Filled with fault. And because it was not enough, God gave a new covenant. So I need to explain this to you. This is like some serious theology here, okay? But we've got to, if you were with us when we used to be in the living room, I used to have a whiteboard that I loved, okay? So I've brought the whiteboard back. This is so exciting. Okay, here we go. So I need to uh, explain to you the two covenants. So the old covenant, the we'll call it the original covenant that God made with human beings and specifically with the people of Israel went something like this. Uh, went something like this. So from the beginning, God wanted relationship with mankind. In the Garden of Eden, He wanted relationship. And so He made the covenant with man, and it went something like this. If man trusts, loves, and obeys God and all His directives, then they would reap the benefits associated with a covenant. And the covenant is like a promise. Okay, They'd reap the benefits. But if they didn't obey the covenant, then they would also reap the punishment, okay? There would be a curse. Now, this was always in effect. This was always in effect between God and man. This old original covenant. Now, God reinstated this covenant when He brought the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt, and He's building up the new people in the, in the covenant uh, with Moses. So he brought Moses, as I said, up to the mountain and he gave him the law. So we often know this as the Mosaic law. And this was what God uh, gave to the people of Israel so that they might organize themselves as a community, as a society that was honoring to God, that showed that they st stood apart from God amongst all these other nations that were worshiping all these other gods, that they would be a people called out that worshiped the one true God that they would honor God if they followed His commands. We call this the Mosaic Law. Now here's the problem. God knew that man could not and would not fulfill the law perfectly, so He built into the Mosaic Law sacrifices and offerings in order to act as a means to repentance. And so what you have is means of repentance built into the law, and these means of repentance were officiated by the priesthood. Okay, so we've been talking about all these things. And this priesthood worked primarily in the tabernacle, in the tent. This is where they would do the offering, okay? Now they would offer things like lambs and goats and bulls and whatnot, but they would have to do it repeatedly, over and over and over again. 
Which means what? None of these sacrifices were the end-all, be-all. Okay. This is what we would call the Old Covenant. The Original Covenant. Which is a covenant of works. A covenant of works, okay? Now, here's what happened. God needed to institute a new covenant which goes something like this. All men and women fall short of the glory of God and they therefore are sinners incapable of keeping their end of the bargain, their end of the covenant of works. They're unable to fulfill the law of God. So, they are outside of the salvation of God. But God, in His love, promised long before that there would actually be coming a second covenant that He would actualize in space-time history, and we call this the New Covenant, and it was presented to us by the sending of God the Son into the world. His name was Jesus, and He lived, and He was tempted, as all men are tempted, because He was fully man, but yet He did not sin. He never broke the law of God. He fulfilled it in every way. And by this life lived by Jesus, this perfect life, He actually fulfilled all the tenets of the Old Covenant, the original covenant of works, and therefore in Himself He finds the blessings of the Old Covenant. You tracking with me? Okay. So in Jesus are all the blessings of the covenant of works fulfilled in its totality in Jesus. And so Jesus then becomes the new covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. And all the blessings of covenant with God are found in Him. And then His perfect sacrifice on the cross becomes the means by which sin is destroyed and forgiveness is extended to all. Once and for all. No more repeated sacrifices. Once and for all, His death, His perfect death on the cross fulfills all the requirements of sin. And now the people of God, now the people of God are not the people who follow the old covenant, but the people who choose to put their faith, to put their trust, not in themselves, not in their works, but in the works of Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection as their Lord and Savior. Now, Anyone can approach the righteousness of God because of the righteousness, not of themselves, but of Jesus. Does this make sense? So we unite ourselves to Jesus, and because He's bestowed with all the blessings of the covenant, we too have it. This is the new covenant. Our union by faith with Christ brings us back into the covenant. So we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He indwells our heart. The new believer then remains indefinitely a part of God's family. This new status, sealed by the Spirit, this forgiveness, this righteousness that we now have imparted to us through Christ, this is all made possible not because of our intelligence, not because of uh, our discipline or our work. It's an undeserved gift from God. God just gives it to us undeservedly, and that's why we call it the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. This is a new covenant. 
and it was actually predicted by the prophet Jeremiah in the 6th century B.C., 600 years before Jesus came. And so that's what we see in the second half of chapter 8. Let me just read it, starting in verse 8. For he finds faith with, or finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming. This is quoted from Jeremiah, the prophet, predicting this day. The day is coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them up by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so, showed no, and so I showed no concern for them. Because the Lord, uh, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, the new covenant. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one of uh, his neighbor and each one of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, for the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards the iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Predicted 600 years before, fulfilled in Jesus, this new covenant. And it's a covenant that comes with the power of the Spirit. And so we just know. We just know. Okay. Now to my whiteboard. So this is so important to understand because we forget it all the time. There's an old covenant and there's a new covenant. The old covenant looks a lot like rigid rules. The new covenant looks like vibrant commitment. The old covenant looks like Christianity under my parents' roof, don't do this mentality. The new covenant's Christianity under Jesus' roof, wanting God's best for me, true life. The old covenant was written on external tablets. The new covenant is written on the tablet of my heart. In the old covenant, God feels like a judge lots of times. In the new covenant, he feels like a friend. In the Old Covenant, we only enter into the tent on certain days and certain times. In the New Covenant, every day, every moment, we can enter into the heavenly sanctuary because of Jesus. In the Old Covenant, we have this old priesthood. We've read about that. It's a priesthood in the order of Aaron. In the New Covenant, we have a new priesthood, which is in the order of Melchizedek. Read chapter 7. You won't understand it, but Jesus is a new priesthood. In the Old Covenant, we have the old tent, the old temple. In the new, we have the new tent, the new temple, which is the heavenly sanctuary. In the old, it's imperfect, it's ineffective. In the new, it's perfect and effective, meaning it actually affects salvation. In the old, repeated sacrifices. In the new, one sacrifice for all. In the old, shadows. In the new, real, heavenly. In the old, the law was meant to remind us of our sin. In the new, the new covenant removes our sin. That's a huge point. So the old covenant, you could refer to it as the law, and the new covenant is grace. Okay? Amen to that. I'm going to leave that up here for just a sec here. I'm just going to kind of push it to the side. That was awkward. Okay. This is so important to understand. Most of us don't understand this. Wasn't it always this way? Wasn't it always the, uh, the law of grace? No, it wasn't always this way. In fact, the Old Covenant 
was never meant to succeed. What? Yes, the old covenant was never meant to succeed. And what I mean by succeed is provide salvation. The old covenant was given to us, the law was given to us, that we might realize that we needed something else besides our own works. It was just a shadow of the covenant to come. And so you see these shadow sacrifices because of the real sacrifice of Jesus coming. Now, the elephant in the room is this. Well, then what about all those who died in Israel even before the coming of the new covenant? How were they saved? They were actually saved through grace. The covenant of grace. By faith. And we'll see that as we go through Hebrews. So even though they didn't know the name of the Messiah or the one who would bring the new covenant, if they trusted in the character of God and if they recognized their inadequacy to come to Him alone with their own works, then they too were saved by the covenant of grace. Because in the mind of God, Jesus was always coming. The new covenant was always coming. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, it failed. What am I going to do now? It's like, it always was going to fail. And I was always going to send Jesus. And He was always going to offer grace. Okay. Let's reset. That's the way it is. You can like it. You can hate it. But that's the way it is. Now how does this apply to you today? How does this idea of the Old and the New Covenant apply to you today? Because you say, well, I never was living under the Old Testament law. I was never trying to follow the Mosaic law. But here's the deal. Every single one of us in this room has an Old Covenant. Every single one of us has at some point, and we probably swing back and forth, serving the Old Covenant. Every single one of us. Here's what it probably looks like for some of you. For some of you, it probably looks like your parents' faith. You go to church, not because you want to encounter God and meet with God and build your relationship with God and worship God. You go to church because you know it makes your parents happy. Or it makes somebody in your life happy. Or, the Old Covenant is something like a code of morality. Maybe you don't even consider yourself a Christian but you probably have an old covenant. You think if I live in a certain way, if I'm a decent, good person, then you know what? If there is a heaven, and I don't know if there is, I'm probably going there because you're living by the old covenant of morality. For some of you, it might look like this. It's what I call the copycat covenant. You do this. You say, I will do everything that this person in my life does or this person that I've read about or heard about. I'll do everything that they did because I really like that person and I like the kind of person that they are and I want to be the kind of person that they are. I hope my life turns out like their life's turned out and so I'll just copy everything that they do. That's your covenant. And you judge yourself by how closely you follow this particular person. And then for some of us, it's what... It's the covenant of patriotism. I follow the rules of this great nation. I give back to society. I vote. I preach democracy and capitalism. And if I do all that, I'm good with God. We all have an old covenant that we 
used to live by or are still living by or we go back and forth between. I don't know what it is for you. It might be a mixture of all of those. But I think for many of us probably in this room, number one is of special emphasis. We're doing this whole Christian thing because that's how we were raised. That's what my family does. So I guess I'll do it. And a lot of us are doing that because we're in what I call the phase of life that I call potpourri. Potpourri. Have you heard about this? It's a term I'm trying to coin. I'm trying to get it in the dictionary. Potpourri. Here's how I came up with the word. Most of you are post-college, but pre-parenthood. You see what I'm saying? Post-college, pre-parenthood. You're post-priest. You're post-priest. Okay. And what's so special about this phase of life, the potpourri phase of life? I just recently came out of this phase of life. I'm no longer a potpourri. I am post-parenthood. I'm a post-post. I got nothing there. But what's so special about this phase of life? Well, in this phase of life, and I believe this with everything, it's, it's part of the reason that we're planting in the city. It's part of the reason, uh, you know, that we're not in the suburbs. It's part of the reason that, you know, you know I'm so hip and, and relevant. That's a joke. Because in this phase of life, I think more than any other phase of life, you have the chance to form your identity. You're no longer living life under your parents' payroll. Hopefully you're getting jobs and you're starting to be self-sufficient until you're starting to ask the questions, what do I want to be about? Who am I going to be? And so hopefully you're asking also the question, what covenant do I want to live under? The old covenant, my parents' faith, or the new covenant of grace and relationship with Jesus? And so you're asking yourself, am I going to remain a Christian because my parents were and it would make them happy, or am I going to be, remain a Christian because I believe it's true and I want it to be the center of my identity? We're asking this question all the time, what tent am I going to live in? Which tent am I going to find my wife or my husband in? Which tent is going to affect uh, my job selection? Will my tent selection affect my financial decisions. So we're asking all of these questions in this phase of life as potpourris. And during this phase of life, you will do one of three things. You will do one of three things. You'll either return to the old tent, which is this idea of limited religion, perhaps uh, religion for religion's sake, perhaps it's code of morality, perhaps it's the copycat covenant or patriotism. You'll return to that old tent and you'll say, you know what, it works pretty well. And in fact, there's real blessings in the old tent. I'm not saying that there's no blessings in the old tent. I'm not saying if you go to church for the wrong reasons that you won't get the blessings of community and purpose and belonging. And you know what? You could actually reap benefits, but they're limited benefits. So are you going to return to the old tent? Or are you going to just stay in the wilderness? Are you going to stay untented? Are you not going to come underneath anything at all? Now if you do this, you know, you'll have all sorts of freedom, all sorts of liberty and license, and it'll be great. But you know what? You won't reap any benefits. Not the benefits of the old, and not any of the benefits of the new. In fact, I think this is part of the problem with potpourris. 
It's another great part of my analogy. What is potpourri? It's dead flowers. And why are they dead? They've been cut off from their roots. And so we live in this, and why, man, if you're right out of college, man, you are smelling good. I mean, you're like, man, I'm making money. Life is good. Upgrade that cable package. Come on. But you know what? Year and year and year go by, and you remain unrooted. You remain untented. You know what potpourri starts to smell like? Grayson's diapers. It starts to smell real bad because you know what it is? It's dead. And it isn't getting any life from anything else besides it's decomposing. That's the problem with the potpourris. Uh, let me just return very quickly to this returning to the old tent. This is a huge uh, conviction of mine. I see this cycle happening over and over again. I grew up in the church. There was some real blessings there. It helped me become a good person. It helped me become successful. And so I become a potpourri, post-college, pre-parenthood. I don't do anything about it. And then you know what? I have a kid and I get freaked out. How am I going to teach him to be the kind of man that I want them to be or the kind of woman that I'd like them to grow up with? Well, what worked for me? Well, it seemed to work for me because my parents took me to church. So you know what? I'll take my kids to church. But you know what? My faith is so thin because I squandered the potpourri phase. I squandered this time when I had way more free time to study and learn about God and develop my relationship with Him and get into community. I squandered it. And so now I take my kids back to church because that's what worked for me. But I have no way to actually teach them how to grow at home. And so you know what happens? They do the exact same thing. And generation after generation, the cycle continues until you get a very thinned out faith with no meat, no substance, and eventually somebody in that generation will decide, I'm going to be untented. And here we go. Here we go. Of course, the final option is to find the tent of grace, the true tent, the tent of God. But so many people, so many people never find that tent. Never find the full possibilities of that tent. Because, you know what? It's the least comfortable and controllable option. I can't control grace. I can control works. I can't control grace. It also requires a supernatural faith. I don't get to be the one to come up with the answer. Faith comes upon me by the Spirit. So I don't really like that. It also requires me to sacrifice my own agenda for the Lord's. And then I think there's one more reason why so many people walk right past the tent, the true tent of grace. So if you're on the email list, you got the Harry Potter clip. I'm not a Harry Potter guy, I apologize, but it's a great clip. Because they're walking through uh, the sea of tents and they come upon uh, the Weasley, Weasley's tent? I don't know. And uh, it looks like every other tent. It's, fa- it's very ordinary. Uh, but when they walk into the tent, what they realize is that the tent is this giant mansion on the inside. Now on the outside, it didn't look like much. It looked like every other ordinary tent. But on the inside, it's marvelous. It's wonderful. And I think so many people walk right by the tent of grace, the true tent, because you know what? It looks pretty ordinary. It doesn't look spectacular. It's not the biggest tent 
in the field. You know who wasn't very impressive to most people? Jesus. He was very unimpressive. In fact, the Bible says that he wasn't much to look at. He wasn't very attractive physically. His family was unimpressive. His town that he came from was very unimpressive. His job that he did for the first 20 years of his life was a blue-collar job as a carpenter. Very unimpressive. He never owned a home, let alone a fancy home. He never led an army. He was pretty ordinary, pretty simple, and yeah, the people that followed him, they were also pretty unimpressive and pretty simple, his disciples. But you know what? If you spent time with Jesus, if you hung out in Jesus' tent, if you heard Jesus tell stories, if you watched Jesus heal people, raise people from the dead, that very unimpressive exterior becomes very impressive. Jesus had a way of making ordinary tents, ordinary homes into famous homes. Story after story. Read the Gospels. This house is now famous because Jesus entered it. You see, it's not the tent that makes it great. It's what you find inside the tent that makes it great. The tent of the new covenant is the better tent, not because of what it looks like on the outside, but because inside you find Jesus ministering in that tent. So many people miss out. So many people just want the packaging and they're missing out on the good stuff. I love this about kids. They just want to open the present. And you know what? They don't even want what's in the box. They just want to sit in the box. We act like kids. We just want to sit in the box. We care about the box instead of what's inside the box. Jesus is in the box. Golly. It's not the size of the building. It's not the size of the crowd. It's not the website, the signage, the lights. Is Jesus in this place? This is what makes this tent valuable. Not anything that we can do. Not anything that money can buy. But if Jesus is in here, then this is a valuable house of God. What kind of house Are we going to be as a church? What kind of tent are we going to bring? Is it going to be a tent where people find Jesus? Or is it just going to be a lot of noise and lights? Is Jesus right here? What kind of people do we want to be? Is this a house of grace? Or is this a house of works? Jesus is the superior minister. He's the one that people need. He's the one that people need to encounter. He's the one that needs to heal you. He's the one that saves you. He's the one. Nothing else. No one else. It has to be Jesus. He's the superior minister. And if he's not ministering in your life, then you're missing out on all the benefits of the new covenant. The covenant of grace. Grace is about being honest with where you're at. Grace is about exclaiming to God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I I cannot save myself. The old covenant, the original covenant, I've broken it. I need the new covenant. I need grace. Jesus, I need you. I need to experience your ministry in my life. But so often, we don't want to bring our trash to the sidewalk. And so we wonder why the garbage man, when he comes by, doesn't pick it up. 
The garbage man picks up trash that's on the curb, not that's sitting in your backyard. And I fear that we've got plenty of people that are piling their garbage in the backyard and wondering why isn't Jesus dealing with it. He's dealing with it if you bring it to the curb and you say, help me, take this from me. I can't do it on my own. We've got to stop hiding our garbage from Jesus and bringing it to him because he's ministering on our behalf. He's serving us day in and day out. And I'm convinced that we've got work to do as a church to be better at bringing our garbage to the curb where Jesus is faithful to pick it up and take it away forever and ever, and it'll never come back. But we've got to be honest. Grace is not just love. It's about forgiveness. It's about dealing with the mess that's piling up. Do you feel like you found the true tent in your own life? Have you stepped out from underneath your parents' roof and stepped under the roof of Jesus? Are you in His tent? Are you dealing with Him personally or are you using some mediator? You've got to get to the real tent. That's what he died for, so that you don't have to go through a separate channel. You don't have to go through your parents. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through your fellowship group leaders. You go right to him. If you feel like the tent you're under is full of shame and guilt, then you're not in the true tent. The true tent, you'll find safety and forgiveness and confidence and security and thriving if you feel like you're merely absorbing verbal instruction, if you feel like you're experiencing passive religion, then that's the old tent. In the new tent, in the true tent, you'll find faith that is alive and active, that's vibrant commitment, that's Jesus calling you into His ministry and His mission to participate alongside with you. That's the true tent. If you're not experiencing it, you might be in the old tent. The old tent is a place that you enter and exit in order to consume spiritual goods whenever you need it. Maybe it's once a week, maybe it's once a month, maybe it's once a year. That's the way the old tent works. The new tent is a vibrant daily, day in, day out, moment in and moment out. You're always under the tent. You're never outside the tent. The tent is everywhere. It's covering you. If you feel like you just come and go and consume, you're probably in the old tent. I'm guilty myself of experiencing the old tent of entering and exiting when it's convenient or beneficial. I live on this roller coaster of guilt and shame. I try harder. I try to say the right things, do the right things, but I always fail. It never works, and I realize that I need grace. What tent are you in? I want us all to experience the new tent. And here's probably how you're going to get there. You say, I feel like I'm probably in the old tent, or I spend most of my time in the old tent. Here's what you need to do. Ask yourself these questions. What old patterns or habits are my old covenant? What are the things I try to do to earn God's forgiveness? So you've got to identify the old ways. And then you've got to ask yourself, what do I need to do to make my faith my own? And then you've got to move. You've identified it. You know what you need to do, and then you've got to move. And you've got to get out of the old tent, and you've got to start wandering around till you find the new tent. And don't just keep wandering endlessly. You've got to find the true gospel-centered tent of grace. Maybe it's in a church 
like ours. Maybe it's in a fellowship group. But make sure they're preaching grace and forgiveness brought by Jesus, not by your work. And it's really hard to find the right tent if you think you're already in it. It's very hard to find the right tent if you think you're already in it. So you need to get around some people that can help you maybe identify. Maybe you're living in the wrong tent. Maybe you need to start walking towards grace. And here's what you'll find. It's extremely difficult. That you might find the new tent, but that you stand at the door and you look out the windows and you wonder what's going on out there. I wonder what it's like out there wandering, being tentless. I wonder what the old covenant would be like. Don't do that. Explore the new tent. Explore the true tent. This is where the true glory and benefit is. This is where we want to be. This is where we want to be. As we move into Thanksgiving, the tendency is to not be very, very thankful. And the reason that we're not more thankful about grace is because we've forgotten how great grace really is. If you've ever moved into a new house or a new apartment that's an upgrade from the old, how quickly do you forget how good the new is versus the old? How easy it is to not remember what it was like when you only had half of a bedroom and now you've got a whole bedroom. You know what the best way to remember how good you have it is? A couple things. Drive by the old place and be reminded. And you know what else you do? Invite people into the new place and hear them say, wow, this is what happens in this tent? I think the reason we don't love grace, we don't sing about grace, we don't celebrate grace more is because we're not talking to anybody who's never experienced it. Because when you share about grace to a Muslim, they say, what? I don't have to work to get there? And in fact, not only do I not have to work, I can have assurance that I'm going to be in paradise? That is so different than the way the world works, that the religions of the world work. Grace is so different, but we don't understand it because we never actually encounter people who don't know about it. So the best way to remember and be thankful and grateful about grace is to start sharing about grace. And people will say, wait, what? That's what Christianity is? Yeah. It's about grace. Oh my gosh. And then we remember this is different. This is special. So here's what I want us to do, okay? I'm going to give us a little assignment here for uh, our time of reflection. I want you to take out your prayer card if you've got your bulletin. Take out your prayer card. And here's what I want you to do. Here's my hope. I hope that you understand a little bit more about the covenant of grace. I hope that you understand that there's old tents in your life that you're probably going in and out of, but that there's a new tent, a better tent. I want to motivate you to make your faith your own, okay? And I want you to be more and more thankful for God's grace in your life. 
And I know that there's people here who have no idea which tent that they're in. I know that there's people who are very happy probably living in the old tent. And I know that there's people that are in the new tent, but they oftentimes peer out. I wonder what it's like outside the tent. I know we've all been in all of those places. But in this time of, uh, over the next three songs, I'd like for you to reflect, and on your prayer card, I'd like you to write one of three things. I'd like you to ask yourself the question, what do you find most difficult to remember about grace? And what do you find hard to believe about grace? Because we're not thankful because we don't remember, and we're not thankful because we don't understand grace. What are those things? And I want you to write one of three. Either a declaration, I want you to just declare to God as a praise. God, I am reminded of your grace in my life today. Thank you. Dot, dot, dot. Whatever you want to say about God's grace in your life. Maybe it's something, some garbage that he's picked up for you. Maybe it's something that he's helped you uh, escape in your life. Make a declaration. You can also make a petition. God, your grace is hard for me to grasp. Help me to grasp it. Help me to understand it. Help me to see a better way of understanding your grace. And three, you can, you can write down a prayer of movement. God, I know that I'm hanging out a lot in the old tent. Give me the courage and the strength to move to the new. Something like that. You write it how you want. This is you talking with God.